right. Welcome, everyone, to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, a little information for our guests and listeners. Here are your trigger warnings. We're going to be talking about horror, horror culture, and horror movies, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, child abuse, really effed up stuff. And in a moment, I'm going to say the actual word. So if you're not prepared for that, please go uh, take a chill pill or medication or something or talk to a friend. Uh, But if not, or if if that's all good with you, then uh, yeah, listen to us talk about murder, rape and suicide and fucked up shit. Today's guest is Chris Alexander, former editor of Fangoria magazine, currently the editor of Delirium magazine and uh, director and producer with Full Moon, as well as the co-founder of the Canadian horror convention Horrorama. Welcome, Chris. How are you doing today? Yes. <laughs> I'm, do- I'm there doing is. good, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> oh, we lost him. Damn it. No. No, he's back in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Am I here? Okay. I'm doing good. I'm still doing good. I was doing good when you lost me, but I'm doing even better that I'm back. So <laughs> I'm great. Real well. Real well. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we get started, is there anything you're currently working on that you want to... Um, Tell us about before we get started. Um, sure. Yeah, I just released uh, the 25th, 25th, 25th issue of Delirium magazine, which is the magazine that I kind of rebuilt as I was winding down uh, my tenure at Fangoria with uh, with my friend and partner Charles Band, producer Charles Band, director Charles Band. We have Roger Corman on the cover, and it's a, it's a great 40th anniversary salute interview I did with Roger while he was, you know, he's 94. He's stuck in quarantine there in, in L.A., and uh, it's just as sharp as ever um, about his 1980, uh, uh, speaking of rape, um, rapist tuna monster movie, Humanoids from the Deep. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that right now. If you go to fullmoondirect.com, you can buy that issue or subscribe if you're so inclined. Um, I also just finished, um, I think it's my seventh, sixth, seventh um, feature film called Girl with a Straight Razor, which is kind of a psychological giallo surrealist thing that i shot here during the pandemic and under very strict quarantine measures with only a handful of people and it's it's probably the coolest thing i've done i think so i'm just in post on that now and and uh, outside of that i'm watching a lot of films and um just uh just existing in the world which i'm very thankful for so right yeah as are we all Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah so in this interview, we'll be uh, asking three sets of questions covering childhood, teenage years, and adulthood to find out what it is about horror that you like. Cool. Uh, the idea being that if we interview enough people, we might find some interesting common themes, also might find some unexpected ones, which would also be cool. Um, coming at the questions from multiple angles like that helps trigger memories in case you forget something. Um, but that said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there are any questions you don't want to answer, just say pass and we'll pass. Um but starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Um, you know, since I, I always say this, since I have a memory, it's it's always been it's always been drawn to you know horror, monsters, dark fantasy, rock and roll, weird stuff. But mm-hmm. if I can chart it back to like a handful of influences, one I, I should say that I was kind of raised around people that loved movies, and uh, mm-hmm. so it was always kind of and loved weird stuff. My dad loved science fiction. Would let me stay up late at night and watch the Twilight Zone reruns with him, which was a huge deal for me. Huge. Mm. Um, as a very, very young child. And also really encouraged me to 
explore music. I remember listening to Jimi Hendrix's um, Are You Experienced album with headphones Good on when I, when I was like three. I wasn't even in kindergarten oh, wow. or anything. And he would, uh, ma- listen, we'd listen to the song Third Stone from the Sun, and, and he would make up this whole narrative about these banshees that were coming from space. And I was just like, whoa. And I'm, you know, it's such a psychedelic record. So I had the big cans mm-hmm. on my head. And he would ask me to, to pick out the separation of the stereo and stuff. So really, really influential and sparking my imagination with, um, with media. Um, and then he brought home nice. this album in 1978. So I would have been four. It was uh, Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, narrated by Richard oh, wow. Burton. Yeah, it's a double-disc progressive rock nightmare you know, with uh, Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy and Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues and, and narrated by Richard Burton. But if you've never heard it, you've got to run right out. It's on Spotify. It's, it's, a night, it's, it's like a living, breathing cinematic nightmare. It's got a huge cult following in Europe. It never really landed here in, in North America. It actually has a stage show that toured for years in Australia and Europe. And, um, anyways... Um, so that blew my mind, and inside there was a book that had uh, it was heavily illustrated by all these great painters, and they showed um, the destruction of you know Victorian London by the tripods, and people were being blown apart. And at the end, when the Martians die, it shows the birds have opened up their you know their tripod helmets have fallen off, and the birds are like eating the blood from their brains, and and it just I was like, oh my god, what am I looking at? <laughs> so there, w- there was that, and you know, just like you're, you're terrified of this stuff, but you can't stop looking at it because your brain doesn't quite process what you're looking at. You can't quite figure it out. You know, you shouldn't shouldn't necessarily be looking at it because nothing on Sesame Street or, or, or it looks remotely like this. So this is something, and none of your friends have any point of reference to this stuff. So I don't know. You know, it's very singular the experience. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I went to the library and I was lift, sifting through the records and. I found the cover of Kiss's 1977 record, Love Gun, which if you know mm-hmm. that Ken Kelly painting, it's the four members of the band, and there's all these kind of like half-naked vampire ghost women swooning at their feet in this dungeon. And uh, Gene Simmons has fangs and bat wings, and, and I didn't know what I was looking at, because I, I say, this can't be, a, this can't be music. I don't, what is this? Mm-hmm. It's, like a, it's, it's, it's like a monster comic. So Gene Simmons was my first vampire, you know, and mm-hmm. then I became obsessed with Kiss. And then I think the final the grace note that really hit this whole fascination home was um, my grandmother took me to uh, Clifton Hill, Niagara Falls, which is on the Canadian side of the falls, because I am Canadian, I'm from Toronto. And uh, we went to the castle, the House of Frankenstein, which has been there since, I think, the 60s. And it's a wax museum. Mm-hmm. But okay. once, you, once you enter it, you can't leave. So I would, again, again be about four. And uh, we walk inside and there's all this you know terrifying music and these heavy breathing sounds and these like stalagmites hanging from the ceiling and and they're there every time you step on something you go and i wanted to leave but i wasn't allowed we had to walk through it and i was in hell i mean i was terrified of this thing but uh, i even i don't even think i saw half the exhibits because i was hiding my face but then but then when you let when we left it we finally you know i see the exit sign we race for it uh, of course, my grandmother, my aunt are laughing their asses off. I'm, I'm dying. <laughs> but we end up leaving, and here we are. We walk into the gift shop because, you know, it exits through the gift shop. And um, Of course. Yeah, and there's all this Muzak playing, and there's like little uh, snow globes. And, and everyone's kind of, you know, very mundane and boring and looking at stuff. And, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, make the connection between what I literally had just walked through a door. <laughs> A door in another dimension, and here I now suddenly I'm in a completely different world. 
And it was that dichotomy, totally, it was a dichotomy and that, that weird push and pull. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I became obsessed with, with Frankenstein. And, and uh, because I, they, they bought me like a little flag that I could put on my wall and I would have to hide it at night because I couldn't look at it. But <laughs> as soon as I woke up, I'd put it right back on the wall. Um, and then that was it, man. And then I discovered Fangoria and I used to like hide that in other magazines and comic books. Oh, yeah. And, and comic books too. That was a big deal too. Marvel comic books and, you know, the Incredible Hulk, I'll even cite, is like one of my first monsters for sure. Oh. Um, and so that, that kind of like loving Marvel, the early Marvel stuff, you're also kind of humanizing the monster. I really liked that idea that these superheroes were kind of like hiding these alter egos that they were, that were kind of out of control. And I, I love right. that, that whole concept. So it was, it was that kind of stuff all bubbling around. And, and then, okay, I guess there's a couple more things. I mean, I, I guess I first saw my first actual horror movie. I didn't know what it was. It was turned out years later. I found out it was The She-Beast starring Barbara Steele from 1966, directed by Michael Reeves, who would later go on to direct Witchfinder General and then die. But uh, there, there was an opening scene where Barbara, or at least a stunt double, as the witch is being dipped and, and tortured in this ravine, and, and she's screaming, and her face is all, like, haggard. Uh, that was terrifying. And, and again, I didn't know what it was because we changed the channel and I was just like, what? <laughs> wait, wait, and go the, back. What, yeah. what was that? Yeah, what was that? And no, no, we can't go back because whatever that is is not for you. And of course, right. as is the human condition, when you tell a kid, especially this is not for you, of course, all they want to do is see what they're not supposed to see. But of course. Yeah. And how old were you when you saw that? Oh, that was again, this is around the eight, between three and five. So all this wow. stuff was happening around this time. And it was, outside of that, it was encouraged. I mean, my uncle, who's mentally handicapped, but very savant-like in the sense that he could do, like, you know, 10,000-piece puzzles in a day. And, and, but he would collect. He was a collector, so he had all the Mego dolls. He had all the monsters, all the models, the Aurora model kits. He had comic books, Viewmasters, and uh, all that. And he would immaculately present it in his room like a museum. And so I had access to all this cool stuff that I could touch and experience and and then the, the last thing that really, that was it, point of no return, I had a Batman comic. I don't know what issue it was, but again, this is 1978, so it was four. And there was, uh, he was fighting a guy named the Blockbuster on, on the cover. I don't know. Anyway, I never really liked DC, but I had this Batman comic. And he flipped hmm. it over, and there was a, a print ad for the uh, Philip Kaufman remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that original teaser poster, which is so cool, has the silhouettes of the four heroes running. And then underneath their shadow looks like kind of these like elongated roots that are coming into the ground, bleed into the title treatment. And uh, again, I was like, whoa, what, I don't know what this is, but mm -hmm. this, this looks cool. And so I wanted to see this movie. And, you know, it was only PG, but again, I wasn't allowed to see, see horror films in the theater. No one mm -hmm. would take me. Um, so I had to wait till it came on TV a year later. And uh, my parents went out to go see Apocalypse Now, I remember, in the theater. Because uh, again, I was like, "What are you seeing? Apocalypse Now? What is this? No, it's you won't like it. It's boring. It's a war movie. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah, 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 it's a lot of talking. Yeah, but they stuck me home with the babysitter, and they said, "Listen, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. All he can talk about is the world premiere of this Invasion of the Body Snatchers thing on TV. You cannot let him watch that." My babysitter, like, no, <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. She ends so up of course you watch it anyway. Yeah, she ends up falling asleep. I had one of those remote controls <laughs> with, with, with like you know those push button remote controls from the seventies yes. that are with a cord that. Yeah. So I oh, knew yeah, it, yeah, the ones like, that made that loud clang yeah, noise. Kajunk, yeah. kajunk, kajunk, uh -huh. And you had a little band <laughs> on the left side that you'd have to go up. You had three choices. Anyways, yeah. I knew exactly where the Toronto station was that was playing this. And as soon as she fell asleep, my opportunity came and I put on the channel. 
just in time to see Donald Sutherland like put the thing under a pillow so you could change the channel. Well, he was like smashing his own clone's face in, and that's like you know that's a PG Uh movie. Oh god, that's that's the scene that you popped in on. Like yeah, right then. Perfect. And then there's that sound of that fetal heartbeat going. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I see that, and it's like again that for a PG movie even now it's surprisingly dark and gory. You know, a lot lot of stuff was in the seventies. They got away with a lot of stuff being PG. Yeah. Oh yeah. um, I mean, PG back then was a lot more. Lax. Yeah, as long as there wasn't a lot of swearing and a lot of sex. I mean, I, the PG was pretty much for. I mean, I remember seeing um, the Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is the most nihilistic of the five. And at mm-hmm. the end, at the end, you know, they the big shootout with the mutants, and everyone gets blown away, and there's blood flying everywhere. And Taylor gets Charlton Heston gets riddled with bullets, and then his last thing is his bloody hand hits the nuke button to blow up the planet, and then it literally blows up, and the narrator says, "That's it. It's all over. It's the little star has been obliterated." And then I remember the little, at the end of it, uh, there's not even any credits. It would just come up rated G. I'm like, rated G? What? (laughs) Those movies were rated G. Like, they thought, oh, it's kid stuff, right? Like, holy shit. Yeah, again, as long as there's not a lot of cursing or sex, then, you know, we can talk about completely apocalyptic and nihilistic views yeah, of concepts uh, the, that kids, the end of the world. Right. I mean, this, these are the concepts that kids were exposed to, back, which I think it's, I think it's great, but... I mean, yeah. fair point, though. I mean, 50s and 60s and 70s, you're having, you know, the uh, crap, what the hell, the, you know, duck and cover stuff in the schools. Yeah, it was, you're right. It was, it was the, the zeitgeist. It was like, and again, we always talk about the 70s being, you know, what was on the six o'clock news was far worse than what could be seen at the multiplex. You know, yeah. although the violence of the war was in your living room. So a bunch of talking apes blowing up the planet means nothing. And uh, yeah, so that was the formative childhood years that set it all in stone. And, mm-hmm. and literally nothing has, I'm 46 now, not much has changed. I mean, it really, I mean, a lot has changed, but that passion has only gotten, surprisingly, you know, a lot of kids put that stuff on the shelf, maybe because they're conditioned to, but I've never put that stuff away. I've made my living uh, based mm-hmm. on, on that, that, that undying passion for the weird and arcane when it comes to <laughs> the arts. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you uh, you had a uh, almost instant affinity towards horror. We typically have like one of three different types of uh, results in in these sessions, and um, one is didn't like horror, thought it was scary when I was very young, then later on progressed into it. Uh, one is kind of middle ground, and uh, the third being those that just from the very beginning are like, I don't know what this is. It kind of frightens me a little, but it's coupled with a definite, I like this, whatever it is, I like it. Well, you know, it's also, it's a, I think it's, there's that old expression, your perspective on the ride depends on when you get on the train, but some people mm-hmm. get on the train on diff- at different points. And I think you have to be, some people, if they're not, I mean, again, I was in an environment where like kind of looking at this stuff and talking about movies and, you know, not just horror movies, but all movies. I mean, I'd get up at mm-hmm. five o'clock in the morning on Sundays with my mother and we'd watch class. I remember watching Citizen Kane when I was really, really little. And, and that's what we would do as a family. So I, a lot of families don't have that kind of, you know, parents tend to really, really hide the weird stuff from their mm-hmm. kids, which tends to almost universally backfire in their faces when they come of age and are allowed to make oh, their own always. decisions. They tend to go all in. Uh, so, but with me, it was were always parents, just. Uh, sorry, were your parents teachers? Not at all. My, my, you know, no, not at all. They weren't. Um, no, they just they're just heavily into. You know, they're from the '60s. They were heavily into. You know, drugs rock, rock and roll well, i don't even think now you know what if they i think i think my dad you know because i never really experimented with drugs believe it or not. I, was, I never 
I never needed them. I always said I said that if a good film or a good piece of music took me to places, I, I wouldn't have to artificially trick myself right. into being in. But my, my, I think my dad was probably into hallucinogens to some degree. But they certainly loved music and, and film, and 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 they was very passionate about. It. And I remember when John Lennon was shot, it was like I was very little. I was like, "Who's John Lennon?" And so they're incredibly passionate about about rock and roll and media. So not teacher, not teachers, but I mean, what's what's a teacher? A teacher is anyone who they taught you. They did, yeah, they they did. So, um, yeah, but not 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 officially no. So looking back over these things that you were talking about, you know, you mentioned both uh, excitement and fear. Um, what excited you about these things? I think it was always. David Cronenberg said, "The moment you lose your true innocence is when you realize you're going to be you're going to die." And mm-hmm. I think watching these movies, I realized about death. I mean, I realized that a we had these weird squishy things inside us, which I didn't even know we had. So I was like, "What's all this?" Mm-hmm. And then you start really being haunted by these cosmic concepts about, um, you know, how precarious we are. These like kind of moving bags of fluid and gushy stuff that could be like decimated in one breath and but yeah i think the real idea about death really upset me i mean i, I think i don't know, i think i'm still upset by it i still have a bit of peace with it. what but about I, it upset you well the whole fine how everything finite and then I, you know my own mm-hmm. i have three sons myself and my middle son said this to me a couple of years ago i think it hit him and i remember when it hit me too it's cold it's a cold feeling when you you have that holy shit where what happened to be where was i before i was here <laughs> and you're like, well, you were no, you were nowhere. I was nowhere. Well, what will happen to me after I'm gone? It's like, well, we don't know. Uh-huh. But it's very, very possible that you'll return to being nowhere. That was a lot to take in. You certainly couldn't go to school and bring mm-hmm. these subjects up when they're trying to teach you reading, writing, and arithmetic. So, right. uh, yeah, I would turn to films uh, to kind of like explore these ideas in, in a very childish way. And also have a lot of fun with it. So there was that that kind of burgeoning, I won't say intellectualism, but certainly trying to make sense of the world I was in and what I was as a human being. Uh, even though I wasn't aware of that, that was certainly part of it. And then the other part was simply um, the fantasy element of it. You know, taking and distorting the human face to be. A, I remember watching. Okay, in 1981, so I was seven, six or se- seven, I guess. I remember. Empire Strikes Back was playing in the theater, but also American Werewolf in London was playing. Oh. And uh, my dad, God bless him, you know, I never, I had Star Wars toys, but but no one ever bought me like the, any of the characters. So I had like 10 Imperial Guards. So I would pretend there were other things. Yep. So I didn't know what these characters did, but I thought the ships were cool. The aesthetics were cool. Anyways, we bought a ticket to see Empire Strikes Back, but we had seen a clip on television of the uh, part of the werewolf transformation. Uh, the mm-hmm. Baker's werewolf transformation. And I was like, whoa. And my dad was like, whoa. <laughs> so God bless. I'm totally irresponsible. But we Mm-mm. bought the ticket for, for Empire and we walked into the next uh, theater, the Westwood Theater in Toronto, and, and watched them, uh, American World from London. And I was super, super young. And it's so funny. I watch it now and it's like, my kids have seen it and I fast forward through the sex scenes and stuff. But I didn't. Mm. Not then I didn't. And it didn't bother me. I didn't, wasn't like uncomfortable because I really didn't know what the hell was happening. But but that movie you know changed everything for me. I mean, oh my god, you know, what an incredible, incredible motion picture. So the whole idea of the, the special effects and how a man could literally grow into a creature like that before your eyes, it was, it's it's you know it's it, it's basically falling in love with the magic trick. You know, how did they do this? 
so that fascination with with the mechanics of that uh, was a huge mm-hmm. part of it. And then when I discovered Fangoria, you know, about a year or two, about two years later, then you were, you know, that was a free space where you could really see the wizard behind the curtain. And then there was no turning back. It was kind of interesting. So I had asked you, I met, I had intended to ask you two different questions. Uh, I was going to ask you what excited you about this stuff. And then I was going to ask you what scared you about this stuff. But when I asked you what excited you, half of the things that you listed were things that scared you. There's a little both. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hand in hand, for sure. Let's see. As far as social element goes, you had uh, a father and an uncle who were pretty well into this as well as your mom that you know liked uh film in general i guess mm-hmm. um, yeah and i mean i also mentioned my i had a great i didn't go to kindergarten i didn't go to junior kindergarten i went to my great grandmother's it was this uh mm-hmm. my granny wedding my, my british granny and okay. um she was huge into monsters i forgot about that and she was also into soap operas and, and at that point um abc had started rerunning dark shadows and mm. so every day at lunch we would uh, she'd already gone through the cycle of it in the early 70s but we we would watch dark shadows every single day cool did you have any uh did any of this stuff trigger any you know fears that you didn't have or you know anything that uh changed how you approached life i used to be scared because i mentioned kiss uh, that love gun i used to be when i first found out that they existed and then i was told that they were real I used to have nightmares that they would come like ghosts through my ceiling vents in my condominium. <laughs> I'd wake up screaming, and then I had to be like, my had to be cuddled back to sleep and, and reassured that that kiss is not coming to get me. Um, which which is really <laughs> funny to me now because now I'm I'm quite close with with uh, both Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, which is nice. why I produced four Kiss magazines for them, and uh, and still my favorite band of all time. I'm. I'm hoping you told them this story. Well, yeah, I mean, but me and everybody else, you know, I mean, every, yeah, yeah. everyone is such a fan base that everybody's had uh, some kind of story. But, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, but back, who would have known? You know, like forty years later, I would have be sitting in their living rooms. I mean, it's crazy. Life is crazy. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that was a huge thing. I'd be definitely scared of that. But, um, and I, I would have nightmares. I had all kinds of reoccurring nightmares. But, but it never ste- pushed me away from wanting to experience this stuff. I mean, I used to be so obsessed with throughout my entire young life I, before vcrs and everything i would get the tv guide and and what i would do is i'd get my highlighter and i'd highlight anything that said horror move like a movie that was labeled horror in the tv guide mm-hmm. and um i had a leonard malton video book i think at that a little bit maybe that was a little bit later but i remember later on when with my malton book when i was like 10 um you know, it's again, no IMDb, no internet. And I had to rely on that Leonard Malton for reviews. And I memorized every title, every alternate title, running times, if it was color, black and white, made for TV, whatever. Um, hmm. But I would notice that if Malton gave it like three or four, if he gave it four stars, it was going to be really good. If he gave it two and a half or three, eh, it could be a dodgy proposition. If he, it was a horror hmm. movie and he gave it a bomb, it was going to be amazing. So I would <laughs> make sure, like it's true, like, like Lucio Fulci's zombie was a bomb and even uh, the brood, Cronenberg's the brood was a bomb, and so I would like highlight anything that was bomb uh, or one star. If it was one star, I knew it was going to be really down market, really foreign, and really weird. And I would hide an alarm clock under my pillow when I was like asleep, like a tiny little battery-operated alarm clock, or, like I took a double A battery. And I'd wake myself up at key times and sneak downstairs and sit in front of the television and watch that film on low 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 volume and of course if i heard a creak upstairs i'd have to turn it off and sit there in the in the fucking dark and uh, wait until the creak 
subsided and I was knew that no one was going to come and yell at me for being up in the middle of the night. And then I turn it back on and that added to the weird, you know, stress of watching these movies. It was, of course, it was, mm-hmm. and, but it was, it was addictive. It really was like kind of, I said, I never really experimented with drugs who needed it. This was a kind of mm-hmm. natural weird, weird drug that I was, was high on was exploring this stuff. And again, it was so singular because no one else I knew was into it. So I, it was yeah. a journey of, uh, I was a, it was a one man's journey, you know, and it was really, really, really personal and really cool. Yeah. I just want to back up one second. So when we mentioned uh, or asked if you had any, uh, if it triggered any fears other than this kiss vampire thing, which I'm guessing went away at some point, but, but there was no lasting phobias. No, the kiss vampire thing, a went away as soon as I got, uh, I think dynasty, 1979's dynasty out of the, out of the library. And actually listened to what the kiss was, and I was quite disappointed that it was just you know rock and roll. I was like, oh, mm. I thought it was going to be like <laughs> screaming and monsters yelling and growling and scary music, and it was just like happy, upbeat rock and roll. I was like, oh, right. Uh, no, there was no lasting. Um, you know, I I had I used to have terrifying when I saw Dawn of the Dead. Again, I was ten. That was another huge turning point um, because the uh, the epic scope of it, the 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 whole idea, the op, you know, the kind of you know, almost operatic way it's presented where it spans quite great period of time and it's the end of the world and it's apocalyptic and, and also Savini's insane gore effects uh, were mm-hmm. the disemboweling just did me in. And something about that movie really, 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 really fucked me up. And I had for a whole year, I had night terrors when I would get up and, and wake up in other rooms crying. And mm-hmm. I was, I was terrified that the whole, I think it was the whole idea that, Again, tied into death, but now I, I, I the whole idea that your granny or your mom or your cousin are gonna die and that sucks. That's even worse. They're gonna wake up, and then when you go to hug them, they're gonna like rip your neck out. I mean, that that really really disturbed me. Mm. Um, so Dawn of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead left a, an indelible impression on me. It's my favorite horror film of all time, but um, it certainly was one of the few that I can cite that had uh, a real like. Yeah, not negative effect on me, but, but really upset me. Mm. I don't want to, I don't want to dig too much, but just trying to understand what you mentioned about the, the dreams, um, what I'm trying to understand what it was that upset you about them. It was, have you ever had your, night, have you ever had night terrors before? They're kind of, um, they're kind of, you can't, I think that they're so, there you can't really pin down or articulate what it is about it you wake up and you just don't even really understand why well that's what i was about to ask because i was going to say was there a common theme or was it just random different stuff all the time it was it was it definitely dreams about zombies i mean i was definitely mm-hmm. afraid of them being chased and stalked and, and devoured and mm-hmm. but also again it was the idea that people that we know mm-hmm. that were the what is it the, the uncanny you know what's familiar is also alien and so, mm-hmm. you know, there's somebody that you know, but they're looking at you. They don't see you. They see you as something else. They see you as prey. And mm-hmm. it was that idea that I couldn't quite figure out in my mind or make peace with. Um, and that really got under my skin. So this caused this almost full year of, of dread and anxiety when I went to sleep. And then, of course, as these things tend to, to do, when you have enough of them, you're afraid to go to sleep because you, you almost will yourself to have them again. You know, right. you psych yourself into it. So it, w- it was about a year of that. And then suddenly it just, just stopped. 
that was it. It was over, and then you move on. <laughs> um, and then I then I discovered uh, Lucille Fulci's uh, The Gates of Hell, aka City of the Living Dead, and mm-hmm. but a year but a year later, and uh, that that kind of did me in a different different way because it was so surreal. And How old were you when that happened? That was when I was twelve. So when I was twelve, it became more of a communal thing. I think that's what it was. Yeah, is that when because you had like I, more uh, friends and and more of a group to to watch the films with? So it wasn't so much a singular journey, like you said. Well, what I would do, and I've always been kind of like the Pied Piper during this period, because there really wasn't a again, there wasn't a community of, of horror fans my age. I mean, they're not not we weren't acknowledging it on Halloween. We'd love to dress up, but there wasn't a lot of that. But I would have a briefcase. Well, I'll tell you what, if if this is possibly moving into teenage years. Let's hold off on that for a second. Cause you actually touched on something I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about all, the, sure. all this stuff was how did this affect your Halloween? <laughs> ha- Halloween, you know, even to this day, I'm not, not a big fan of Halloween because here's really? my problem with Halloween. No, okay. here's my, 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 my problem with it. Um, you know, it's like the Adams family, the monsters, what's special about Halloween when every day is that day for you. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, my lip curls up a little bit in that, you know, loving this stuff, and even with in some members of my own family, I was looked down upon. Like, what's something's wrong with them? You know, uh, and teachers and and polite society, but thinking that there's something wrong with a kid who is you know obsessed with Dracula and Frankenstein and zombies and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, on October 31st, in the weeks leading up to it, it's perfectly okay to cover yourself in blood and and uh, to to run around and be as scary and disgusting as you want and and watch horror movies and everything else. It's okay because everybody's doing it. And then suddenly, November first, that stuff is back in the box. And then it's you're 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 a sick human being if you love it and again, you know. And I always hated that. I never understood it. I always pushed against it because it didn't make yeah. any sense to me why the hypocrisy of it. I hate it. So even to this day, Halloween's fun. It's great. But I mean, I live in a house with my three kids, and it's you know we got vintage pinball machines, and we got monster statues and we got all kinds of crazy stuff here so literally every single day of our life is is that so there's nothing particularly um you know our halloween happened this year it was you know in toronto here all quarantined and locked down but it didn't change anything for us because every day is like this mm-hmm. but um yeah so it didn't really i mean i liked it at the time when i was a kid because i other people were suddenly on the same page with me and we, yeah. could, we could have fun. And then if we're, are we allowed to move into teenage years now? Or are we, we're not quite there yet? <laughs> uh, let me take a quick scan through the questions that I have written down. Um, covered nightmares, uh, influences. The only other real question would have been, um, if there was anything that actually terrified you as a child. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too, too into the guts of it. No one wants this to turn into the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, my parents uh, had a, a I had an idealistic childhood until I was about ten, and then something internally happened with my parents; it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, you know I'll be honest, it was a pretty harsh few years there where there was battle royal, and so the kind of stuff I witnessed and had to experience uh, in, during those those times was infinitely more upsetting than than the fantasy. The fantasy was the escape. That's where you wanted to kind of like run away from this stuff and 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 try to make more sense of it and see something that was much more interesting than what mm-hmm. you were dealing with. So as far as movies go, yeah, I mean Dawn of the Dead, The Night Terrors, all that stuff. But there was nothing that I saw that at that point in my life. I mean, the early days, yes, Frankenstein, 
I told you the House of Frankenstein, and Body Snatchers. But there was nothing at that point when I was like nine, ten, that was um, trying pushing me away from the genre at all. Mm-hmm. I was I was all in, and 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 I wanted to be scared. You know, it becomes like like everyone always tells you, it's like chasing the dragon. You know, you have that that first sip, and you just keep wanting to go there. So you're, and then once you get conditioned, you get scared, and then it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm done with that baby stuff. Now I want the next level, mm-hmm. and so you're always trying to level up. Um, yeah. To stop for a second, I, I don't know if I don't think we did such a great job uh, of explaining this at the start of the call, but you know, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is exactly something you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, which is. You know, a lot of mainstream society does look at people who are fans of horror and think, you know, you're kind of weird. And my background, Chris is more the horror fan. I'm more the psychology buff. My my background has always been people make sense. You don't always understand what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're doing. But if you can dig down into it, you'll get to a point where you'll understand why they're doing what they're doing. Sure. Um, and we don't know if there being any good dissection of why it is that horror fans love horror the way they do. Like maybe there's some clinical document written by doctors somewhere written in some obscure jargon that, that we've never heard of, but you know, that was part of the reason that we wanted to do this was to give horror fans an opportunity to lay on the couch a little bit and, and talk about some of these deeper things as a way of getting at, at the, the deeper understanding that then explains why it makes sense. Well, I mean, um, you know, I, there was a friend of mine who made a documentary called Why Horror, and, and a lot of mm-hmm. people, the Carpenter, was I, I was in it. But I, I always took, not issue with it, but I, it was wonder at the end of the day, it's like, well, why are you asking why? I, mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, either you're in or you're not. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. kind of like, you can look in the mirror all you want, and you, all you'll see is yourself staring back, and eventually you go, eh, and you will make mm-hmm. peace with it and walk away. But I think it really, really at the end of the day, um, to me, I think, the why is very simple. Um, it's the same reason people were telling ghost stories around campfires in the, in the caveman time, scratching stuff on walls. And is that um, the same reason why religion exists? You know, I'm sorry if you're religious. I'm I'm not a fan of organized religion. I think it's these were these were stories to you know kind yeah. of explain it's, away the, the the mysteries and the anxieties of of the of our lifespans and the mysteries of the universe. And I think that's why we gravitate towards this stuff because it is bigger than what we see. And it is. Mm-hmm. It does ask bigger questions, even if it's something as rudimentary about uh, life and death, you know, and sex, and those. Those are the three real mysteries, anyways. Yeah, that's why we do it, and we do it for one reason. We become addicted to it because we, we, the people that really love this stuff are fixated on these these questions, these bigger questions. I'd argue that a lot of horror fans are somewhat intellectual because they are trying to figure out stuff, but they are digging a little deeper. And we watch this stuff, I think, to to um have some control over it yeah that's part of it i mean it's really multiple different sides there's um there there is the uh the quest to find out un- unanswered questions but there's also like you were mentioning before um uh, just the, your your first experience with seeing the invasion of the body snatchers to me one of the first things that uh develops that interest and that draw to all things dark and horror is just the visual element of it too. If something is just very well done, very well drawn, very well sculpted, very well put together with lighting and just the imagery of it, just that first glance of it draws you in because it's, it's good shit. It's made very well. I would quickly say too, that, you know, 
when we're talking about the why and, and you know, kind of almost alluded to saying who cares. Well, there's two reasons for that. One, uh, to be able to say, hand something to mainstream media and go, here's why. And it makes sense. And also, you know, there are other people in, even inside the horror industry and, and fan culture that maybe you don't personally care about digging into it. But like I said, I'm a bit of a psychology buff and I'm sure that there are other people who are both horror fans and psychology buffs at the same time who might find some interest in it. And, you know, you mentioned, for example, being addicted to or fixated on some of these questions and having some control over uh, either the outcome or, or understanding of the answers. You know, we've probably talked to what about 25 people now. And it's really interesting that uh, there's, there's quite a lot of different reasons and there's not a lot of overlap yet. We've had people who liked horror because of rebellion. Some of them are fixated on these questions. Some of them it's because primarily because of a, a close familial relationship with somebody in their family. Um, there's other work that aren't coming off the top of my head, but there's actually a couple of different good reasons. Yeah, I mean, everywhere. It's, I think that's another thing is that uh, you know, uh, I said your perspective on the ride depends on when you get on the train. But but the love sure of this is. stuff, cer- certainly, the love of, of anything is subjective, and it uh, it hits you when it hits you, and your reasons for, uh, you know, that the, the coded entry into your psychology is definitely personal. There's no one True. one one lo- locking unlocking mechanism. That's for sure. Right. But I think I think the blueprint of it is 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 at the end of the day, it's. It's you know when I discovered what the Freudian id was, I, I understood the genre even more and why why we are attracted to it mm-hmm. because uh, all those what do you base, mean? Well, those base impulses that drive us, you know, all all those those things that are we as a society try to push down. We try to pretend yeah. that they're they're not here, and that perverts our sexuality. That you know that does I think does a great uh, disservice to a lot of the natural things that that drive us our, our base instinct. Yeah. And and horror kind of gives us that free space to, particularly have, in American uh, yeah, culture, anyway. Uh, well, American, but not necessarily. I mean, it's a Judeo-Christian, I think. Um, mm. But but I, I, I if we push this stuff down, but horror kind of gives us a license to to explore that, and that's why that's why you know horror is primarily a it, the you know it does so well with teenagers and has historically done so well with young people. Is that right. that that's they've been told not to to talk about these things, you know, don't, don't swear, don't do this. Don't talk about, you know, sex. No, we're not going to tell you about sex. We're not, you know, all this stuff. And suddenly they can go and, Oh, what's this? Oh, wow. Whoa, yeah. Yeah. It's like a safe, creative outlet for the macabre and taboo. Right. Then they can go. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I mean, that's, that's all it is really. It's a perversion of our id, and, you know, and the monsters too. I mean, when you have a dream, your brain's still working, so it's the natural world, but it's you're not in control of it anymore, and you wake up and you're like, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. And that's what, what a lot of the great, again, when I saw Rick Baker's American World from London Transformation, where that face was suddenly being pulled and distorted into something else, I mean, it hits you because you've had dreams like that, where a face is not a face, a staircase isn't a staircase, and suddenly mm-hmm. it's happening before your eyes. And so... All that that subconscious stuff is suddenly realized in the in the real world, and it's wild. One of my favorite authors, which I've brought up on this podcast before, is uh, Professor Joseph Campbell, who said something that I really liked about dreams. He said that 
the language of dreams are symbols. It's uh, symbolism, but it's the same thing with religion that hmm. religion and dreams both use a lot of the same symbols, but the translation is slightly different because what some of the symbols might mean to us might be slightly different than what those symbols mean to society at large. Like for example, Superman, you might have a dream about Superman, but you could interpret that symbol a hundred different ways. Um, I've never, I've never had a dream about Superman. I can honestly say well, that. Yeah. <laughs> but now, but now, <laughs> that now, as an but now we are talking about uh, probably will tonight. Yep. Yeah. That's, how they work. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Moving into uh, teenage years, you mentioned this uh, Fulci movie. Yeah. So Which I think one? when I, when I was 12, I was grade seven. And, and what I would do is I'd started a new school and you know, every time you start a new school, you can kind of reinvent what you are. Cause there's no memory mm-hmm. with anybody where you've yeah. come from starting over so, a new chapter right so it's like well this is my stuff this is what i do so i can come on real strong with this and be very <laughs> announced to the world and say this i want to see something you know and there's that twilight zone the movie where dan Aykroyd's like, i want to see something really scary <laughs> and i was like well i'm gonna do it i'm all in so i had my dad's old briefcase from his real estate days and i packed it full of fangoria's and all nice. the comics and i'd get on that school bus because i took a school bus and i went right to the back teacher call home well, no, the te- the kids are just like, who's this motherfucker? You know, I was new, and I would just open the briefcase and start pulling out these early Fango magazines. You know, the Great Uncle Bob period, God rest his soul. And uh, you know, all the guys were like, what, whoa, whoa, whoa! Let me see, what's this? Oh my God, brains okay. falling out! Da-da. And all the girls would be like, ew, ew! But of course, the girls, <laughs> girls want to come over and see it too because they're just like, whoa! And they're but at the end of the day, they're. Every single person on that bus, whether it be a jock or a, a geek or whatever, we're all like, who the hell's this guy? <laughs> I, I became a kind of like, you know, smut peddler to a lot of these. <laughs> First they, one's all, they all knew. And then it really caught on because I'd be in class and I, I didn't make no bones. To the fact every assignment we do, I tie it back to some. And I was a, an encyclopedia by that point. I knew stuff that most, you know, established people wouldn't know. Again, running times, <laughs> like deep cut filmmakers, you know, I was into like Paul Nashie. I, I found a Paul Nashie late at night movie called Dracula's great love. And I was telling them about these Spanish horror films and the uh, hammer movies. And so, you know, some teachers really kind of dug it because they could clearly see I was articulate, passionate about something that even if they didn't like it, they'd be like, wow. And then everybody else, suddenly you're like, again, Pied Pipering, a lot of people that had a vague abstract interest in it. Uh-huh. Suddenly you had a circle of friends uh, of people that really wanted to follow you down this this rabbit hole, so we used to have sleepovers. You know, at this point, we um, like movie nights. That, yeah, we'd seen Nightmare on Elm Street three at that point. It was new, and mm-hmm. one of the cool things we thought was really uh, a key to staying up all night was Patricia Arquette eating spoonfuls of instant coffee and a <laughs> cola. So we would do that. We would get super uh-huh. offed up on caffeine <laughs> by literally eating it and um coffee like ground coffee it's not and the same as they show in the movies is it you, you think it's going to be easy you just take a spoonful of coffee this is fine, and then, <laughs> I, oh, I can still taste it it's like eating uh, a cigar you know i can it's still like, feel it in my teeth it is the I, worst I, experience ever. it is instant you're and you're instantly dehydrated like whoop, you're like the mummy yeah. like, it's like the cinnamon <laughs> test just oh yeah. god but you but it, but it worked like your eyes were bulging uh, so we we yeah, pulled the all, you up 
And we would pull the all-nighters, and so it became this uh -huh. communal thing. And then on Mondays, the next day, it'd be like, whoa, we rent. And we, we would just rent. It was my, my recipe. Would we rent, you know, one, one of our guys would want to rent, like, a Friday the 13th. By that point, I was really bored by that stuff. I'm like, okay, we do that. Then we got to go and randomly pick something. Usually, if it was in a big box, I knew it was going to be cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big box, like, there's all Euro European stuff, down market stuff. Mm -hmm. So we grabbed one of those, and we just pulled these all-nighters, and, and one of them was Gates of Hell, because I'd seen a photo of it in uh, Fangoria magazine of okay. the girl Barfinger Gutso. And that just did me in, because it was just taking the art of gore to another level, but also dressed with all this kind of prog progressive rock, and I love prog rock, so it was like, wow. This is like a, a visceral experience. It's like bypassing my intellect and hitting me right in the intestines. And I, I just I love this that stuff. That uh, so that awesome. was a huge thing. And then, you know, th that was, the, again, that was the golden age of the video store. So my dad and I, every Friday night, we'd rent, rent horror movies too. And, huh. and, uh, and he'd always fall asleep and leave me to my devices. And one mm -hmm. of those movies was like uh, Lumberto Baba's Demons that really did me in as well. And, Wait, did you just say Lorena Bobbitt's Demons was a no, warm I said, memory? I said Lumberto Bava, but oh. <laughs> we can get into Lorena Bobbitt later. I'm sure she has some demons. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's like my, my, those are warm memories, you know, of friendship. Mm -hmm. and, and my father, yeah. who, who, who passed away in my arms a couple of years ago, was my best friend. You know, he... Uh, him just falling asleep like a son of a bitch and leaving me alone on this couch but it was cozy you know like there was my i was with my dad you know i was watching this stuff so i was kind of yeah. alone but i wasn't alone and no, we'd make like and the old man and i would make deals with each other i'd say like i remember one night it was the omega man was on mm -hmm. and and i already knew what i am legend was i hadn't read it yet mm -hmm. but i okay. i read all about I it knew of it yes i'd read about it and i knew the different film i knew the last man on earth with vincent price and I wanted mm. to see the Omega Man. He said, that's cool. He goes, well, we'll stay up and watch the Omega Man, but first we've got to watch Ben-Hur. I'm like, oh, man. But we did. <laughs> man, to this day, Ben-Hur is one of my... Heston. Yeah, but I love Ben-Hur. I thought it was Wasn't cool. that like I... four hours? Especially on television. It was like yeah. four hours. <laughs> With commercials. Now, yeah. thankfully, we had to abandon the last act, but we had, at that point, had to be Sarah so we could tape the Omega Man, and I'd watch, or tape the, um, the rest of Ben-Hur, and I'd watch the Omega Man live. But, uh, you know, again, the Heston double bill, it was great. And, uh, again, to this day, Heston's one of my favorite, Planet of the Apes, obviously, a huge influence on right. it. So oh, yeah. Heston's one of my favorite actors. But all that stuff at that point is tied to a very uh, kind of, again, a horror prior to that was a very, not, I was like God's Lonely Man. I was like Bill Bixby at the end of The Incredible Hulk walking off to the sunset. But, mm -hmm. uh, but at that point, it was more communal. Uh, There's much more of a feeling of camaraderie at that early parts of my teenage years. Yeah, yeah. Like three points that I take away from what we just discussed as far as your uh, your teenage years was um, one. Glad to hear the uh, the response and the the reception that you got from high school because I I started to think like when you first started talking about it that oh, man it's gonna it's gonna suck because you're gonna be this new kid in a new school and you come in with all this cool horror culture stuff and all the normies are like oh you're weird we don't like you but it sounds like you had a really good reception from most of the kids and then those that weren't necessarily horror fans. Uh, started to get drawn in, into it with the Pied Piper effect anyway, so... Awesome. Yeah, I never, I never had a... Because I was very uh, very articulate and defiant. Like, you couldn't... It was like crossing swords with Zorro. Like, I think teachers just knew. <laughs> like, it's like, well, I'm not gonna go to battle with this guy because he's, he's, he's ready. He's ready to go. Yeah. He'll, de he'll defend... <laughs> he'll die on this hill. He'll defend this. <laughs> exactly. And, so, and, and I never had a problem 
I was always kind of my own guy, I had my own vibe, but I never mm-hmm. had uh, an issue not having, I was never like ostracized. You know, everybody yeah. kind of, if they didn't like me as they didn't want to hang out with me, they respected that whatever I was doing, there wasn't anything to compare me to. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like, I, I was at peace with everybody. I got along with everybody. So it was, yeah, it's it was great. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good run. And the other two things were that, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like you had uh, another great experience with uh, horror in general in, in your teenage years. And the fact that you had not only the social group with uh, all your friends at school, but you also had the, you know, you had movie nights with them and also movie nights with dad. So, I mean, it's just like double whammy. Totally. Yeah, right. And then I had my, my mom wasn't a huge horror movie nut, but I had movie nights with her, too, where we'd watch other stuff and she'd kind of put up with my. Interest. I mean, you know, my mom actually, I love giallo films, you know, I love Italian horror. And I credit her with that, that love of that stuff because she turned me on when I was a kid to Miami Vice. Huh? Which may sound funny to you, but Miami Vice, if you look back on that stuff, I wasn't allowed to watch Dukes of Hazard because my mom was <laughs> too redneck, too cracker. <laughs> and I, again, I had the toys, but I didn't know who they were. I had Boss Hogg. I thought he was the hero. I didn't know. Meanwhile, I was not allowed to watch Miami Vice. <laughs> well, I see Miami Vice, so we'd stay up every Friday night, and it was on at like nine o'clock, ten o'clock, uh-huh. and uh, I'd watch Miami Vice. And if you watch that show, it's you know they sh- they throw music. Well, that thing is wall to wall music. Oh yeah. And uh, there was one particular episode. Um, I forget the name. Little Miss Dangerous, I think it's called. Yeah, because it's a Ted Nugent song, Little Miss Dangerous. Okay. But uh, it's one of the ones where Tubbs is the hero, and he falls in love with this female serial killer. And at the end of it, when they realize that Tubbs is, is banging this killer they crockett gets into the spider and he zooms off into the night while the pil is the order of death this is what you want Walt. this is what you get well, a lot of people that remember it as part of the movie hardware but years before it made its debut on miami vice and it played the song hmm. in its entirety as the killer tied tubs up in this in the middle of the night and was dragging hmm. a knife across him and huh. meanwhile crockett is racing through the dead streets of miami in his black car while this song is Anyways, and then she blows her own brains out at the end. It was basically like a Dario Argento movie that he never directed. Hmm. And, uh, so my mom turned me on to all that stuff, and that was, that was great. So, yeah, really great memories during all this time. And again, I mentioned the video store. It really was, mm-hmm. for younger listeners out there, it really was an amazing time when you could walk into this, myth, especially if you had like one of the superstores, mm-hmm. like a Bandito video or a Jumbo video. And they had the, de- the designated horror section that sometimes was built right. to look like a castle or something. And, huh? and there were so many players out there, out there at the time releasing everything, some of it authorized, some of it not. So a lot of positive reinforcement. Yes. Yeah, indeed. a great time. I, I, my movie, my, I have the happiest movie life growing up, totally. Well, let's jump into adulthood then. So what are your, some of your biggest uh, influences in your adult life in horror then? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I think, to me, the older I get, um, you know, I was a publicist for a while at Warner Brothers Films, too. To me, the very word horror I've kind of taken issue with, in the sense that it's a marketing term devised by publicists early on in the game mm-hmm. to kind of easily categorize a kind of entertainment and market it to a specific audience. And so mm-hmm. the expectations of what a horror movie is and the definitions of what a horror movie is and the constant fighting between this, this new wave of fandom as to what's a horror movie and what's not a horror movie. So my idea of what a horror movie is, is broadened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think my, the stuff I'm, you know, my, I mean, when I was running Fangoria, for example, I took over Fango in 2009 
And the first thing I did was pretty much just jump right in and start throwing weird stuff on that cover that I knew would kind of upset the status quo. And uh, I would put weird stuff. Like, I remember I put my third issue in, I think I put Black Swan on the front. And I did, I blew it all out white. And it was nice. Natalie, Port, Natalie Portman's face right on the front, like dead center. And I got so much hate mail for that from fans saying that, you know, I was killing Fangoria, that Black Swan is not a horror movie. And I, and I welcomed that. So we'd have these open dialogues mm. everywhere about, you know, what is a horror movie? You know, how, how do you define it? You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's so many movies out there that are, are marketed as something else. And if you really take a close look, they're horror films. I mean, in retros- retroactively, I look at Taxi Driver, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And to me, that's a, probably one of the greatest horror films of the 1970s, although no one ever calls it a horror. What makes it horror to you? Well, it's the isolation of it. You know, it's also borderline surreal. So it feels like it takes place in a nightmare world that, that it's this dangerous, festering sore of a, new, a version of New York that only exists in the mind of, of this guy, mm. you know, and, and, and it's his complete breakdown. We never really get to know Travis Bickle. We're never quite sure what makes him tick, but we know he's ticking like a bomb mm. and we're just waiting for him to go off. Um, and you couple that with the, you know, Scorsese's kind of almost malevolence of, of the grime of that city. Mm-hmm. Coupled with that, Bernard is Bernard Herman's final score, which is uh, to this day I still drive around at night by myself listening to that that soundtrack. It's the greatest night driving music because it's just the keeps night you just awake. comes alive. <laughs> well, it just it not just keeps oh, yeah. you awake. It's like you can really you know just one of the great examples of music taking an innocuous image and transforming it completely into something malevolent. Mm. Yeah. And the night the night becomes evil. Listen to that score. But, but, I mean, you can, you can find all kinds. I remember walking out of the uh, Toronto International Film Festival screening of uh, Lars von Trier's Melancholia and, and calling it the greatest horror film I'd seen in years. And knowing full well it wasn't a horror movie, or at least that's not what people would call it, but coming out of there feeling more dread and feeling more upset than I'd felt in watching any kind of franchise horror film in any recent years or an insidious I'll, film or something. I'll ask like again for this one, too. What made this one horror for you? <laughs> Have you seen Melancholy? I mean, it's the approach. Chris? I mean, Tamir Von. Yeah, I have not. No. Yeah. Uh, so, if you know Von Trier's movies, to me, I think he always makes horror films. He just pretends they're not. I've heard Chris yeah. mention a couple of his in the past. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. he's he made one. Uh, Antichrist is is uh, that's him saying yes, I'm making a horror movie, and what a horror movie! I almost walked on that movie. It, it upset me so much. I will and never I, look I, at a two by four the same way again. Oh, oh my god, any of it. Like, I mean, I, I literally, I'll cite that as one of the greatest horror films of the, of the millennia, but I'll never yeah. watch it again. I, I own it. I've never come out of its shrink wrap. I'll never <laughs> watch it. I swear to you, I don't think I ever need to ever see that movie again because it, it bit me so hard. Why? But yeah. Melancholia, Melancholia was like this, you know, this dark dream about the, this planet that's moving towards the, the, our planet. And it's this big okay. blue planet. And it's echoed in this, in the fact that, um, Kristen Dunst is suffering from this deep depression and she's isolated from everybody because she's so depressed. But at the end of it, she's the only one who kind of, because she's at peace with, with death and with, uh, she's the only one that can kind of comfort her family. And at that moment when the planet's going to be obliterated and everything is going to be destroyed. And uh, it's, it's, it's very nihilistic, but it also has this kind of dark beauty to it, danger. And I can't describe it. These are movies that you can't really articulate. It doesn't do them a great disservice. You have to experience them. And to see it on a gigantic screen like that, I, I literally felt like I was like I was exiting into the gift shop back when I was a kid from the, from the Wax Museum. You're in this other uh-huh. universe. 
that's filled with menace and dread, and then you walk out in the sunshine and you're like, huh? I mean, that's, that's what I'm. Lo- that's what I'm looking for in a movie. I'm looking to yeah. enter in another dimension. That's yeah, the uh, change me. You know, transcendence. Yeah, where you. Yeah, like, yeah. You just, it, it draws you in, where you no longer think I'm watching a screen that has a story on it. You're you're just right. right. And, 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 I do, and I don't get that watching. I never really did slasher movies. I, I thought there's no magic in those movies. I enjoyed yeah. them. I enjoy them. I'll cycle through the first mm-hmm. five Friday the Thirteenth. I love the fifth one uh, every so often. But uh, I never feel a sense of magic. I just kind of I find them to be like amusing because they're pretty terrible. I mean, I'm gonna... well, yeah, no, I'd, I'd say about seventy five percent of slashers you turn seventy five percent of your brain off. It's not Sla- meant to be a thinker. Yeah, slashers are like listening to a you know some great old fifties garage rock with the three chords. And, and, you know, you know exactly what you're gonna get. You're eating a McDonald's hamburger. You know exactly <laughs> what you're gonna get. You know you don't hate yourself for it, but it doesn't. You don't remember it once you're finished with it. Mm-hmm. You talked about basically being drawn into this alternate universe or alternate reality so that when you come out of the theater, it's like walking into that gift shop. Do you see any common threads as to what does that for you? Well, I think I'm always trying to find movies that do capture a kind of night, nightmare logic. You know, mm-hmm. um, When I discovered Dario Argento, and again, Fulci is City of the Living Dead, these are movies that aren't operating by um, the logic of the natural world. Yeah, that dream some, state. Yeah, there's something else going on there, and and sometimes they work. I always said, like, you know, I, I remember seeing Hellraiser two when we re- we rented when one of our binges we rented Hellraiser two, and uh, I thought visually, it was un. I still do think it's it's beyond words. It's it's incredible that the lab, mm-hmm. the dusty labyrinth that Hell's supposed to be in, the design mm-hmm. of the of the Doctor Chenard and the the whole mattress thing with Julia's rebirth and. What, a, what an incredible visual and oral experience of that Christopher Young score. And then as soon as yeah. the plot, the plot starts to kick in, it's, it's garbage. And as soon as like, <laughs> as soon as like Ashley Lawrence starts to talk, it's like the dialogue and it's just like, stop, stop making the abnormal normal. Stop normalizing this incredible Baroque experience I'm having here. And so when I found the Italian stuff, I was like, oh, wow, this is just, this is just, you know, I want to go there. Take me into, take me somewhere that doesn't exist, please. And don't explain things to me. I don't need to be explained because I won't revisit it. If you try to put logic on this, I won't come back. Leave it open-ended. Leave it weird because then I'll think about it forever and I'll keep wanting to go back to it to find more, uncover more rocks that I missed the first time. You know, try to figure it all out. Mm-hmm. And if I never figure it all out, I'll just keep coming back. Which again is not to say I don't love the... I love all movies, man. I, I, I binge watch Elvis movies. I don't care. I love them. But uh, when it comes right down to it, when it comes to the serious quest, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for i'm yeah, also looking for like filmmakers that you know my favorite director of all time is jess franco but i can't tell you that one jess franco movie i think is particularly great um some aren't even watchable but he's he's a director who's made hundreds of movies under you know, dozens of pseudonyms but they're also personal he's he's like he's like yeah. a down market you know a skid row auteur and so no matter what movie of his you'll watch you'll you'll see something there that that's why people are so obsessed with him because you don't watch one Jess Franco movie. You have to watch them all to fully understand what made this guy tick. Mm. You know? And so to me, that's, that's really fascinating. Directors and filmmakers who, who are so personal with their works that they're leaving kind of a trail of breadcrumbs uh, about their, their identity behind that for us to discover it, decipher, you know? Um, let's see. No. Well, actually, you did mention that there were different things that scare you now as an adult versus when you were younger. 
do you know what any of the, like, in, do you know particular things that scare you now that didn't scare you earlier? The most base boring things, um, really. The older you get, the more death you experience. Legitimate death, obviously. Right. More people, mm-hmm. people you know, or, and especially during this past year, I think it's fast forward a lot of trauma for a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. so they've definitely aged. The I, a lot of people have their innocence has been obliterated pretty quickly in this past year, especially with media saturation. No shit. But yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, you get older. They all they realize you're closer to the end than you are at the beginning. You're on like this turnstile, and you're. You're no longer at the beginning. You can look behind you. You can see a longer line behind you than there is in front of you. Yep. And you start to go, oh, okay, well, that's okay. i got to make peace with this pretty soon because I don't know how much more time i got left. Yeah. But then people you know start to go. And then, you know, I'm a father of three. I'm a single dad of three boys. And, and literally everything I do is, is for these guys. Now, I'm, I'm really lucky in the sense that my energy has kind of, I think, uh, inspired them to be like my my pals you know like they're we're all a move we're all movie guys they can do the same things now they can like uh tell you trivia about stuff that no one will do so i mean they're they're a great team but the idea of anything happening to them is unthinkable right that is mm-hmm. my greatest greatest fear because uh, i don't know how it ever exist yeah. i don't know how it ever happened so because of that you watch a movie where any kid gets killed i mean of course it's gonna fuck you up 10 times more than it did before you had kids right mm-hmm. because that's your that's your life now Exactly. It's like as you go into adult years, your your fears in adult years are more uh, occupational things like bills, taxes, death, uh, loss of loved ones. Yes. I mean, those are the things that kind of pull you into the the genre to begin with because it's an abstract. But what is this lump on my neck? Yeah, that's true. Then, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, it's great to watch that guy get disemboweled back when I was 10. But now you're like, oh, no, man, don't, don't, don't. I don't want to go to doctors. I don't want to be know what's going on there. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so you look, you look for different things, but at the end of the day too, I mean, I, I'm all about aesthetics, right? So, um, mm. I love hammer horror. My favorite, one of my favorite movies is 1960 circus of horrors, just cause I love circuses. I love movies that, you know, take place in circuses. I love brightly colored, super technicolor films. I love old 3d movies, you know? I mean, so mm. outside of all the chin stroking, deep thinking, and stuff i i i love to get in, in the in the shitty carnival ride too and have a great time hmm. that's funny because i was about to ask if you liked the circus stuff for the potential alternate reality but then you kind of took a left turn there and said no that it was but i do i do i love old circuit like uh, again i collect uh 60s and 70s pinball machines because i love the fact that they've traveled the universes been changed hands they've been in arcades they they have people's scores etched in the sides of them i love the <laughs> the art i love the the designs of them i love the smell of them but it, to me it's the it's that weird history the seedy history of the pinball machines i love all that stuff and circuses are kind of like that too because they travel from place to place to place <laughs> there's this weird kind of tribal thing and and they don't exist really anymore so and then also clowns are you know i always go to like spirit halloween and halloween that's another you halloween stop I mean, it's not scary you go into spirit halloween there's clowns everywhere because pennywise was so popular right. again with yeah. it but they're always like these giant demon clowns with super fangs and like ah like that's not scary that no. bozo fucker from 1960 <laughs> staring at me with shiny grease paint like ha- handing me a balloon looking all happy and cute and like that is the diametric opposite right. of happy and cute that is that <laughs> is scary that's the the gacy stuff that's i was just scary. about to say gacy yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The more the safer, the safer, the safer. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. The safer it looks, the the scarier it looks. Sometimes the scarier it is to me. 
So it's funny you briefly touched on Halloween. I was planning on asking if uh, if Halloween has changed for you now that you've got kids who might be more into it than you were. Um, it it did it did initially because we built a little haunted house and have some fun and dry ice and fog. And, but it's um yeah, I mean it's definitely fun. But again, we we do you know I've made a bunch of feature films, but they're very low budget and and my kids were raised on those sets and and they've. They've been helping me out with you know carrying buckets of blood when they were like <laughs> five or six, you know, and awesome and and doing all this stuff and you know and their and their friends and I run this convention Horrorama and so they've been like raised uh, hanging out with all these guys. My son Jack, who's la- you know was twelve, the last we didn't do Horrorama this past year, obviously because everything was shut down. But the year prior, we brought in um, Lumberto Bava and Jaretta uh, Jaretta from Demons, and my son Jack was. You know, he's really gotten into DJing. He's only he was only twelve, and he was DJing that show. And there he is spinning the Demons soundtrack, and and Baba's like and Jaretta are dancing together in front of him. I'm like, do you have any concept how fucking cool this is? <laughs> right. What you got? What you got going on right now? That stuff I've I've laid at your feet. Like you're gonna look back and go, holy smokes! I was like, you know, front row seat to this this stuff. Hmm. So uh, Halloween to us is like it's there it's are bigger the things. There are, there are bigger things throughout the year. I mean, Halloween to them is the bottom line is the most exciting thing because they can just get a bunch of candy. That's it's a candy yep. grab. It's, yeah, a raid. Earlier, it's a raid. When, uh, when Halloween is the same thing as every other day, the only difference is is candy. Getting towards the end here, uh, we've got a couple questions that are going to apply to your life overall, not just any one area. Um, the first two I'm going to ask, I'll tell you both of them in advance, so you can understand why i'm asking them because they might be different answers but uh the first two questions we want to ask are what movie have you watched more times than any other and what movie would you say is your favorite movie because they might be two different things not really i mean dawn of the dead for sure mm-hmm. is my yeah uh, to me dawn of the dead and it's and you know george romero moved to toronto in 2004 when he made land of the dead and he married a, a local oh, girl yeah, that's right and uh so he was like like lived down the street from me and and i was lucky enough to you know drink scotch with george you know a couple times a month and become really close with them and and i have all these like you know i published a bunch of romero interviews in magazines but i have like acres of interviews because i'd record everything because the more he drank you know <laughs> that get, he, he would write he would write at night he'd always write and then you get over there and he'd just be he'd wrap up whatever he was writing It'd be a comic book or a screenplay that he didn't sell and, and he'd start sipping some scotch but after a few few pops he called them pops He'd, uh, you know, you turn on the device and he'd let you and he'd tell you something and he'd just go mm-hmm. and it was the best. It really was the best. So what you're saying is um, we should have liquored you up first. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. I just, you know, my, my love of Dawn of the Dead is, is so, you know, comes from being that kid, seeing it at the right time, giving me the night terrors for the year and then keep wanting to revisit it that way. It's come from sharing it with other people and saying what an incredible film it is and then turning them on to it and, and feeling kind of responsible for this thing and making sure people knew it. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's coming of age as an adult uh, and having access to all these people that you loved so much and then suddenly George moving down the street from you and having a friendship with them and then learning about the secrets behind this stuff firsthand and and, you know, George even built a statue of me where he's holding my separate what? head. Mm-hmm. It's on my mantle. Nice. Yeah, it's on my mantle. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, he's, it's this one-shot deal. We made the statue, and he's holding my head, and he had to 3D scan me and everything. So my passion for Dawn of the Dead is on so many different levels. But at the end of the day, Dawn of the Dead to me is a perfect film because it's so many different films. It's a, war, it's a great war film. 
It's a mm-hmm. great Cuban drama. It's a great apocalypse story. It's a great action film. It's a great social commentary. It's a startling gore opera. I mean, it's like unbelievable. And it's a great scary horror film. It's it's and it's a comedy. I mean, it's very very funny movie. Yeah. So and then there's three different cuts of the goddamn thing. So you have different <laughs> you know experiences with it depending on which slightly different version you watch. And that uh, I can't I can't get enough of that movie. I can watch Dawn of the Dead every day of my life. I will never ever get sick of Dawn of the Dead ever. So Dawn Dawn is the one. Sir, I'm going to have to stop you there. You're blowing my co-host's mind. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He, uh, Why is that your favorite? No, just I can I can hear the background noise of you know the things that you're talking about, like the statue with George Romero, <laughs> you know, holding your head. No, no, I just I just gotta say, if you hear a, a little high pitched tone in the background, that's actually my jealousy meter hit, hitting clip. <laughs> um, you know, damn, I, I'm jealous from, of myself. Okay, so it's right. like. A, because you lived so many dreams from going to you know collecting Fangoria magazine as a kid to being the, the editor in chief. Yeah. And, and then uh, later on, hanging out with George Romero, drinking scotch, and, and he made a statue of you? He made a statue of me, <laughs> the two of us together, holding my severed head upside down. Uh-huh. And he actually paid, paid his DP at the, uh, Adam Swick at this, do a 3D scan of me, so it was accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just like, what? <laughs> it was, what? What's going on? I know, I know, but it's funny when I say these things. That is fantastic. George passed a few years ago, and, and yeah. sometimes, you know, you watch Dawn of the Dead, I forget that that, that was my life. and. You live a few lives like that. Sometimes you forget that it's true, and then you say it, and you're like, "Oh wow!" And then yeah, I get jealous of myself until I realize that that it actually happened. Great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, that was me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really cool, you know. And and uh, I don't take any of it for granted. Hmm. And huh. you know, and there's a reason for all those kind of good things happening to me in that way. Is that you know, I, I think I'm somewhat talented, but it's beyond that. It's that I never let that fire die. I mean, I I just. I've never put this stuff on the shelf and I've never wanted to just be a spectator. I've wanted to be involved mm-hmm. in some way. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. And so I, I and, and, and my philosophy was always, is always that if it exists in the natural world, it's accessible. Reach out. Yeah. So I always, and to this day still, I mean, I have stories about like, you know, Nicholas Cage inviting me to his private Island in the Bahamas and, and tr- chopping up a, a snail to, so I can eat its penis and, <laughs> Trying to get, trying to huh. get me to uh, get me drunk, and, and trying to get me to uh, enact a voodoo ceremony with a, a rooster that wandered onto the courtyard. And, Were you guys trying to reenact Angel Heart or something? Like what? The f- no, it was weird. Like that was like a. I've always loved Cage. To me, Cage is like an expressionist film actor, and I what I loved mm-hmm. about Cage is that he uh, he can do like the weird stuff like Vampire's Kiss, which is overtly mm-hmm. weird, but then he hides in like romantic comedies and and dramas. Yeah. But but if you watch them, he's always the same weird fucker it's like he he's like this foreign element this hor- it's like someone's poured it in like the cabinet of dr caligari and dropped it in the middle of like leaving las vegas right. and it's like it's always been strange to me so um when i was writing fango it turned out he was a huge huge fan of the, the mag and uh I, i'd interviewed him a couple times prior to that but he reached out and he was they were getting ready to release ghost rider 2 mm-hmm. and i liked the first one enough i love the comics the first one was i liked it enough to yeah. say okay and he uh he said look you want to i'm in the bahamas next week you want to come down and just hang out and t- talk about movies and i'm like uh sure mm-hmm. so i literally just, just got on a plane say no to that there's no no to that you no there's no no to that and you just get on a plane <laughs> and you go and and i had to tell you he had a, i had a private map when i landed in the bahamas I, I slept in this shitty hotel and got up the next morning and i had this map where i had to follow to like the, the bowels of the docks and like the worst part of it and I had to look for this one specific dock and this 
his manservant came by with a boat and said, get in the boat. And I said, well, I said well, where are you going to take me? He's like, see my boss. I'm like, who's your boss? I'm like, Nicholas Cage. I'm like, all right. <laughs> we, the boat. we go to his island and there he is with his big, he had a big beard. Anyways, we go to his courtyard and he had all these Hammer horror movies spread out all over his uh, table. I said, I'm doing this for you. Mm. It's all for you. It's 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 for Fangoria. It's for our love of horror. <laughs> you do that very I'm well. Like, yes. really <laughs> I'm like, well, I, I was like, well, what do you do when Entertainment Weekly comes over? And he's like, they're not invited. <laughs> and we spent the whole like the whole day just getting like you know drinking red wine, and he had prepared this huge feast, and we mostly just talked about Terrence Fisher, you know, because he wanted at that point to remake um, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, but uh, and Roger Corman, you know, because he was gonna he was at that point he really wanted to be the next Vincent Price. Hmm. That's what he went. I think in a weird way, he's becoming that. I was just going to say, yeah. he's still got a chance. Yeah. Well, because he's now, he's really at that point. I, and I, that's another time I got in trouble because I said, well, fuck it. He's going on the cover. And we <laughs> put him on, I put him on the cover of Fango and mm-hmm. a two-part interview. And I called him Nicolas Cage, the master of horror. And people, some people got it. A lot of people mm-hmm. didn't. And some of the old school guys, I remember one guy making a mock-up cover to like burn me and had Abe Vigoda on the front and it's Abe Vigoda, master of horror. <laughs> <laughs> but if you read the interview, I mean, we got letters from, you know, Quentin Tarantino bought it and said it's the best, you know, one of the best interviews he's ever read. And we really got into the guts of, of the genre. You know? Doubt we'd ever get him on the show, but it's making me wonder what answers he would have to some of these questions that we ask. <laughs> oh my God, we got to get Nicolas Cage on the show. <laughs> They're they're great answers. I mean, just know that they they're 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 really great answers. I'm sure. Right? I mean, and, and you know, we talking about you know, and his the lives he's led. Remember, he's raised in this industry, and, yeah. you know, hanging out as a little boy with Klaus Kinski. I mean, you don't no, who not many people can tell you a little innocuous stories about hanging out with Klaus Kinski. Mm. Let's get back to I just got a few more questions about you. <laughs> uh, do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Uh, cannibalism, occult, metaphysical, zombie, I think you said. I like Romero zombies and I like uh, Italian zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm burned out on zombies. I think everybody in their right mind is because it's. we talk about horror being kind of the ugly little brother of, of uh, cinema. It's now become pretty mainstream. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. It's Walking Dead, the kind of stuff that was x-rated when i was a kid is now on tv at nine o'clock on network television but i'm just burned out on a lot of that stuff but i think the big driving force through all my my uh movies i like um i like just like really just weird shit <laughs> sometimes i don't even say i don't even like horror i just like i like weird shit and the exploration of finding stuff that just doesn't behave normally but yeah um so yeah i like the really 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 weird shit i don't mm-hmm. like um senseless gore for gore's sake i like gore used as either like point of the exercise or uh, as a tool um to me a movie can be g-rated and still be frightening so it's kind of funny normally the last question that we ask here um i think you've already kind of answered it but mm-hmm. uh normally what we do is we'll narrow down on whatever it is that you enjoy and then ask why horror because aren't there other avenues from which you might be able to find uh you know, sources of these same things. And in your case, you know, exploring weird shit, you said yourself, you do seek it outside of horror. So, um, it, it, I don't know yeah. where to go with that. <laughs> um, is that a question? I mean, no, it's a statement. Yeah. yeah. But I know tied for first place is certainly Dawn of the Dead and, uh, uh Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, which mm-hmm. some people have called it a horror movie. Some people say it's not a horror movie, but to me, uh, yeah, that that represents what I'm looking for as far as horror in the genre in other genres. Uh, 
pretending to be something else. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it's it's uh, it, to me it, to me everything I love about the genre is alive and thriving in that thing. But it also has so much more than just a simple exercise in horror. But that, I can say that about Dawn of the Dead too. So um, to me, I, I I don't know why we have to pigeonhole some of this stuff. It's just you know hallmark of a great film. Yeah. Moving moving away from horror, then I'm wondering: is it a general interest in intellectualism? Uh, you know, is it? Um, well, I'm de- definitely. I, I don't be so bold as to call myself an intellectual, but it's just. It, I mean, it's all kinds of things. I can't even say it's one thing. I do watch movies on an intellectual level, but then I, I'm I'm very happy turning my brain off and just enjoying junk food. I have no problem with that. True, but. I think it's. I think it comes down to like you can have junk food, but there can still be something amazing and incredible and daring and and beautiful and weird and and uh, and edgy, alive and well in that piece of junk food that makes it stand out from the other shit. It's just I, I hate the the expression "so bad it's good," because even in the worst films, I think you can find a moment. And there's a reason why Ed Wood is celebrated because. There's an auteurism there, but you'll find like these little moments that are so sublime. And I'm okay with watching like any film. If I can if there's one second of that picture, I don't care how much I dislike the picture. If there's one moment, scene, sequence, a, a marriage of music and, and a visual, a, a performance, something that sticks with me, then I'll give that movie a pass because it's it's talked to me on a certain kind of level that other movies aren't talking to me on. Something about the way you worded the last couple moments made me feel like maybe intellectualism wasn't the right word. Maybe art is a better word. Well, of which, of art, art, you know, analyzing art is also intellectual. Using your mind in any which way. Which is exactly I guess, what I was going to say. Yes. Intellectualism can be a part of art, but art is more than intellectualism, if that makes sense. Well, again, and sometimes it's, you know, it's great. But I mentioned like the Fulci stuff, which there's no plot. There's no, well, there is, but it's very clumsy and it's not even there. It, you know, guys like Fulci and Mario Bava, the Italians, the Europeans, kind of just shrugged off plot. It was not that interesting to them. What's interesting to them is to, to build a weird universe. And, and again, those movies do kind of bypass your brain and go right to your guts and you experience them viscerally. Then it, it rebounds back to your brain. And then you're trying to decipher why you were reacting that way to that picture. So it becomes, even though the movie's not an intellectual film, right. It becomes an intellectual exercise when you're trying digesting. to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's I can't think what's his, by nature, an intellectual process. Yeah. I can't think of the guy's name, but there's one musician that's very well known f- for what I'm about to say, Daniel, something or other, but you know, there are musicians that there's like an amateur almost vibe going on, but then other people who are very well-known artists in a particular field will love, will go back and look at that and love it and try to tear it apart and go, how, how do I go back to sound like I don't know what I'm doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you can't. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, you can't imitate, you can't duplicate what comes organically. Right. I mean, you just, you just can't, I mean, that's why I love Jess Franco. He used to call his movies uh, and the passion for movies is that first draft cinema there's kind of like a first draft. You don't, you don't th- overthink things too much. You dive in there and you shoot what you feel. You have this kind of innate sense of what you want to focus on. I mean, to me, that's the stuff that changes the world. You know, When you over-process it and overthink it, um, it loses so much of that energy. When you try to, 
try to duplicate. I mean, look at like something like Eraserhead, which before Eraserhead, there was no Eraserhead. There was nothing like mm-hmm. it. You can see so many movies after Eraserhead of guys trying to go back there and, and duplicate that and imitate that. And it never quite works. You know, it always, they call Lynchian or it's like, try, but it's never quite the same. Even Lynch himself, when he tries to kind of go back and, and, and quote some of that stuff, it doesn't quite work because he's playing with too much money and there's too many people involved. There's, you know, it has to be somewhat mainstream, so he has to make some sacrifices. Right. Well, I think we got uh, we got quite a bit of interesting stuff there. I mean, if I were to sum it up, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I mean, the, the, the reoccurring themes that I'm hearing from this call, like I say, it's it's the exploration of the art and and of the unknown. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's everybody's got whatever they have as their lantern to guide them through life. Um, and mine and so many others, it's, it's, it's cinema, well, cinema and music, but to me, cinema is music and they're all, it's, it's all the liberal arts into one, but it's the history of cinema. It's, it's the, the passion for it. And, uh, it's been a constant with me since I was, like I said, since I've had a memory and it will be till mm. the day I die. It's been my greatest companion to help figure out the, the natural world, you know, I and mean, that's, that's, and my own experiences reacting to the world. Um, it's my religion. It's my philosophy. It's it's everything uh, that I need, all packaged into one little thing. So, yeah, that's never going to change. There's no way. No reason for it to. No. No. Well, we do very much appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on yes. and entertaining us. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I said I wasn't going to last the whole the whole run, but it looks like I did. <laughs> and that's why. Oh, man, I, I'm I'm glad you stopped it there because I can feel my vocal cords starting to like. Like atrophy, mm. so it's, it's, it's <laughs> getting dry. It's getting dry. Yep. yep. Uh, well, just real quick, up to you. Do you want a uh, you know closing pitch on anything that you're working on? Um. Well, I mentioned the movie at the top that I'm post on, and there's some stuff coming out of Full Moon. We're we're creating this whole new imprint that I'm I'm going to be responsible for, which this edgier string. Uh, Charlie Band, you know, ran a his, he was one of the pioneers of home video and. Back in the early 80s, he created a label called Wizard Video. And all those giant, beautiful big boxes, he was one of the first people to import Jess Franco and Jean Roland movies into uh, the, you know, the mainstream video store markets with these incredible boxes that are now worth so much money. But that was my heart and soul, you know. And so this little project that we'll be doing is creating a series of smaller films that are pretty much faithful in spirit and tone to some of those edgier uh, video store European horror cult films so but there's no point in getting into that now because we haven't quite figured out the language of it mm. but i think the best thing to do is go to um my website it's chrisalexanderonline.com and that has pretty much all the, the my records and my movies and news and all that crap so all right all this all the stuff and the spiels are all stuck into that little space right and we'll put together a bio for you and link to stuff whatever uh, i'll get to i'll get together with you off the line and talk about that Sure. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you again. And thank you to anybody out there listening. Um, please do come visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. We have a list there of who we've interviewed and who we're looking to interview. If you know any of those people and can help us connect, or if you want to have somebody added to the list, who's not on, who's not on there, let us know. Um, you can also become a Patreon subscriber, you know, link to social media, what have you just come let us know how we're doing. Horrormakesushappy.com. Yeah.